Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Freddie Sayers. Welcome to Unheard. We like to look for important things that aren't yet being talked about, but are coming down the track. One of these, we think, are some legal cases currently being considered by the Supreme Court in the US on the topic of affirmative action, otherwise known as positive discrimination, on the grounds of race. What you're about to hear is a clip of lead attorney for Harvard being questioned by Chief Justice Roberts. There is no doubt that for, as the testimony showed, that for applicants who are essentially so strong on multiple dimensions that they are sort of on the bubble, that they might, they're a real candidate for admission, being African-American or being Hispanic, or in some instances being Asian-American, can provide one of many, many tips that will put you in. People say that, yes, but you will have to concede that if it provides one of many, then in some cases it will be determined. I do. I do concede that. So we're talking about race as a determining factor in admission to Harvard. Most observers seem to think that the court will actually overturn previous judgments and deem it unconstitutional to consider race at all in university admissions. This could have a huge knock-on effect on the whole concepts of equity, on how corporate boards are filled, on how scholarships and places and jobs are given. If it happens, it's going to be huge. The man behind both of the biggest cases being heard by the Supreme Court is called Edward Bloom. He's a conservative legal strategist, and he's devoted decades of his life to campaigning against racial affirmative action. It looks like his lifelong campaign might just be about to be successful. I wanted to knock about the arguments with him from all sides. People on the progressive left might think he's rolling back progress, paving the way for some kind of suppression of minorities. Meanwhile, people on the libertarian right might well think he doesn't go far enough. Either way, there are important ideas that you might just be about to hear a lot more about. I spoke to him from his home in Maine. Welcome, Mr. Bloom. Freddie, thanks for having me. So what is the current case that is most likely going to be considered next? Give us the background on that. There are two cases pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. They are styled Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, and a similar case, Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina. Students for Fair Admissions is a membership organization that I founded back in 2014. 
uh, we sued Harvard and we sued the University of North Carolina, arguing that their admissions policies violate the current laws regarding race and ethnicity in college admissions. But moreover, and really more importantly, we argue before the court that allowing race and ethnicity to be a factor at all in college admissions violates the U.S. Supreme Court uh, uh, jurisprudence going back uh, dozens and dozens of years, and it violates the U.S. Uh, Constitution. I think we, we might have to back up a little bit, Mr. Bloom. I'm just thinking for our viewers over here in Europe or people who are not familiar with the current situation, let's just tell, describe what's happening with university admissions. So currently, universities are allowed to and indeed do, at least elite colleges, overtly take into account the ethnicity of applicants in their final selection for the student body. So they might say, we want more people of this race, we want less people of this race, on the grounds of better representing the country or you know, making up for historic injustices or whatever the arguments may be. But that's what's currently happening. Is that, is that a fair summary? Well, that is a fair summary. Um, the United States uh, law today, uh, as interpreted about 20 years ago by the Supreme Court, allows colleges and universities to put a thumb on the scale uh, based upon a student's race or ethnicity. In the case of Harvard and other elite universities, that thumb on the scale is now diminishing the opportunity of Asian Americans to be admitted while boosting the likelihood that African-Americans, Hispanics, and whites will, will be admitted. And this is, a, this is a story that's not only going on at Harvard, but at competitive universities like Yale and Princeton and Stanford and dozens and dozens of other colleges. So what does that mean? It's boosting whites, because I think most people would understand that uh, there's an Asian-American um, controversy in that they overperform in standardized tests. And if, if there was no um, affirmative action in each direction, they would have an overrepresented portion of the student body of elite colleges. But what you're saying is that actually, in some cases, this form of affirmative action helps whites. Uh, it does. Um, How does that work? Well, let me give you an example that we presented in court that was not impeached by, by our opponents. If you look at a, a typical Asian American male applicant to Harvard and look at the, the quantitative academic um, skills and performance of that, of that applicant, and, and assume that, that that applicant's grades and test scores have a 25% likelihood that that applicant will be admitted to Harvard. Now, change the race of that applicant, but hold everything else in place. Change that applicant's race to white, the likelihood that that white student will be admitted goes up to 36%. Change the race to Hispanic, the likelihood now jumps to 75%. And change the race to African American, that student now has a 95% chance of being admitted to Harvard. This is not a light thumb on the scales. This is a dispositive policy that, that prohibits 
better qualified Asian Americans from being admitted. So is it mainly what's, I'm trying to work out what's animating your mission that you've spent so many years on this. Is it mainly a sense of unfairness towards the Asian American community or is it more of a defense of meritocracy from first principles or are you worried about other minorities? What's, what's driving you? Well, you know, that's, that's a good question. And it's a complex question because there isn't a real simple answer. I think what drives me and what drives this movement is the belief that uh, America was born uh, with, with a terrible uh, scar on its history. And that is uh, the history of, of slavery that then uh, evolved into a history of Jim Crow racism against African-Americans. What came out of that, what was bitterly fought on the battlefields and in the courthouses of America, is the belief that your race and your ethnicity should not be used to help you or to harm you in your life's endeavors, whether you're applying for a job, whether you're applying to be admitted to a college or a medical school, whether your neighborhood is drawn into one voting district or a different voting district, your race shouldn't be used as an element in any of those, in any of those endeavors. So that's what drives me and that's what drives, frankly, the vast majority of Americans who, when polled about the use of race and ethnicity in college admissions or employment or other areas, believe that race shouldn't be a part of, of, of these decisions. That's what I think drives me the most. So this is the famous Martin Luther King quote about being judged on the content of your character, not by the color of your skin. And yet, when people talk about colorblind admissions, or that phrase has itself become controversial in recent years, such as the strange time we live in, that somehow that is seen as code for reversion to majority dominance or something. Do you use the phrase colorblind? Well, I do, um, uh, just as the founders of uh, the modern civil rights movement used colorblind. Um, there are, you know, I think a small minority of Americans, um, uh, they are of good faith, who see colorblindness as a reversion to um, white supremacy. However, in poll after poll, uh, uh, going back 30 years, Americans celebrate the idea of colorblindness. They don't want their race to be used as an element in whether they're hired or fired or whether the police pull them over or whether they're selected for jury duty uh, and sit on a jury. Americans embrace colorblindness and it's not just white Americans, it's a vast majority of Hispanics, African Americans and Asians. We had a conversation with Glenn Lowry last year, who was actually the first person to alert me to this impending Supreme Court uh, decision. Let, Supreme let's Court play has the clip. six conservative justices, uh, the majority of whom have publicly stated that they have serious doubts about affirmative action, about the constitutionality of affirmative action. Now, I've already given my position here that I think the 14th Amendment does not uh, forbid the use of racial preferences, but I'm not a lawyer and I'm not on the Supreme Court. There's a very good chance that racial affirmative action will be stricken by the Supreme Court. If it happens, I assure you, there will be mobs in the streets 
of this country. No one is going to take, no progressive activist is going to take the Supreme Court's ruling as an opportunity to turn within and to consider, if we want to be at Harvard or the University of North Carolina in larger numbers, why don't we get busy preparing our youngsters from the cradle to be competitive in this great country that we live in, where competition is the coin of the realm? No, they're not going to do that. They're going to interpret that as an anti-Black move by a racist Supreme Court. I assure you that it is a disaster. And I think we're headed. To When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What's your reaction to what Glenn had to say? I, I admire Glenn Lowry uh, immensely. Um, although I, I think his concern about, um, you know, riots in the streets and, and protests, I think that's probably uh, incorrect. And let me tell you why. Um, in, I think now it's nine states throughout, throughout, throughout the U.S. Voters have already expressed their opinion on this. In the state of California in 1996, by a significant uh, majority, Californians voted to end affirmative action. That was in 1996. In 2020, in 2020, that question was put before the voters once again. And this is in California, probably the most liberal state in the union. Uh, uh, once again, the liberal voters in the state of California voted to ban affirmative action in state policies. This is this is uh, th this tells us something. If California, we're not talking about Oklahoma here, Freddie or Texas. This is California. Uh, they gave Joe Biden a thirty-point margin in the election. At the same time, Californians were voting for Joe Biden. They voted no for the reintroduction of affirmative action. The state of Washington as well. So, 
Uh, I admire uh, uh, Professor Lowry, but I think uh, I, I don't think that's how it's going to play out at the Supreme Court. So how will it play out then? I mean, let's start with the practical effects, because you gave us some percentages there which were estimates of how different ethnic groups would would perform. I mean, I've got the current Harvard diversity statistics here uh, by ethnicity. They say that in their current most recently admitted class, African-American is 15.2%, Asian-American 27.9%, Hispanic or Latino 12.6%, Native American 2.9%, Native Hawaiian 0.8%, and no other ethnicity is mentioned, which I guess means that roughly 50% would be white. Um, how would that change in your estimate if this is stricken down? Well, we did a study for the courts back in 2018, and um, the premise was if Harvard only uses um, uh, grade point averages and standardized test scores as a metric for admissions, it's likely that Asian Americans will make up about 50% uh, of the incoming freshman class. Uh, Hispanics will go up slightly. Uh, uh, whites and uh, African Americans uh, will go down slightly. Do you have estimates for how far down they would go? I mean, it's kind of important, isn't it? Yes. Um, uh, African Americans would drop to about 10% of the incoming freshman class from now about 15%. Which would leave whites roughly... I think whites came in at around 30%, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, uh, Hispanics also, I think, about 10%, maybe, maybe, a little bit, maybe a little bit more than that. But no one is, no one is advocating, uh, nor do we think that Harvard or any competitive university is just going to say, well, we can't use race, so we're just going to use grade point averages and standardized test scores. That's not what's going to happen. Harvard, I believe, will be compelled to change the entire framework of their admissions policies. Right now, there is a significant boost given to uh, students whose parents attended Harvard, the legacy status. That may be changed dramatically by Harvard. Um, the tips given to certain athletes, those who play water polo or fencing, that may be changed. Uh, and more importantly than, than even those two, Harvard may start to lower the bar a little bit for kids who have come from very modest or even disadvantaged backgrounds, who are the first in their family to attend college, who are raised by uh, um, you know, a, a single parent whose family income falls below a certain level. But wait, so you would approve of that? If, if We absolutely would. And we advocated for this in court, and we've advocated for this at the Supreme Court. This was an important element of our, of our argument. So you're not against affirmative action then? You're, you're only against affirmative action on racial grounds. If it's affirmative action on other aspects of your background, your, you know, social, economic group or education, you're all for it. That's perfectly said. Uh, this organization is against race-based affirmative action, having race as an element. However, we encourage Harvard and other universities to use socioeconomic affirmative action. 
change your internal policies that make it easier to um, uh, attract uh, you know, a, a truly diverse group of individuals, not just diverse by skin color and hair texture, but but people who have come young, young people who have come from very different backgrounds than what Harvard has today. I guess my gut feeling would be that a lot of people who are conservative might feel this is a ancient college with its own history, its own religious traditions, its own, it's a private institution, although it receives funding from the state, rather like a club or any kind of private organization, they should have the right to arrange the people who come around the, the sort of ethos of the college in some way. I think there's a libertarian objection to what you're saying, which is that it, in effect it's, it's the state not allowing you to make your own decisions as a private institution. What would you say to those people? Well, we, we have a solution uh, to those objections, and that is Harvard um, can forego receiving federal funds. There are a handful of colleges uh, and universities in the United States that have done exactly that. They do not accept federal funds. Hillsdale College is probably the best known. Um, if Harvard chooses to um, uh, not accept federal funds, then they can shape the class any way, any way they would like. Um, and, and further to that point, uh, talking about, you know, oh well, what would the conservative uh, kind of cohort think if indeed uh, various colleges and universities had 50% Asian? Well, we saw that outcome or close to that outcome in the state of California. Uh, Asian uh, admissions rates at the two most competitive schools in the University of California system, Berkeley and uh, UCLA Los Angeles, saw their Asian population skyrocket uh, in 1997 and 1998. Yet, um, here it is in 2020, uh, the population there could have said that there's just too many Asians, uh, but they chose not to do that. So I, I don't think the conservative uh, or even liberal factions in this country would object if, uh, based upon uh, a meritocratic, fair system, that the outcome uh, shows that Asian Americans uh, make up a significant majority at, at any college or university. I guess the, the opposite critique, the, the argument from the progressive wing, would be that if you remove the right to actually work to quotas, these private institutions will find other ways around to prefer and to prioritize the groups they like. For example, earlier in the century, back in the 20s and 30s, the controversy was about Jews and Jewish students. And there were growing proportions of Jewish students at some of these colleges. And a lot of the old white people in charge didn't like it much. And they found ways you know, I don't think they were overt, but they would just say, "Ah, oh, I recognize that surname, and I think, think we'll, we won't take that person. I think the argument from the left might be, yeah, it would be nice to live in a world where we could just admit on basis of meritocracy, but unless you shoehorn it, unless you force these institutions to take people in certain percentages, we're going to find ourselves inching back to a world where they just prioritize their preferred groups. Why are they wrong? Well, they're wrong because um, 
I, I think for I think for two reasons. Um, number one, it assumes that the academic gaps between um, uh, African Americans and Hispanics and and whites and Asians uh, are intractable. That uh, there is no way, uh, based upon uh, the history of the United States, that um, uh, the gaps between these these races will ever narrow. That's that's just not correct. It 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 it, it assumes that there is a uh, somehow a um, a system in place that prevents this. Asian Americans in this country are outperforming whites uh, academically. Uh, the Asian Americans that are doing this as a cohort have fewer resources, less, less family wealth, lower income levels than, than whites. Um, this, is not, this is not a problem that is intractable. Although the cliche goes, they have tiger mums who make them do their homework and take this stuff seriously, and the culture in their families is better suited to you know, making sure the kids do their work than some of these other groups, and that's why they overperform. Well, uh, coming from a, um, a Jewish background myself, I, I had a, a tiger Jewish mom that um, didn't let me go out uh, you know, after school and hang out at the basketball court with my buddies and drive around and see girls. We had to study and we had to achieve. Um, uh, the most important educational institution in the United States, and I think um, perhaps uh, in the UK as well, is the family. Uh, learning begins at the cradle. It doesn't begin at first grade. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, end at 12th grade. It, it begins at the cradle. And moms and dads within the Asian community um, uh, expect a, a, a certain academic achievements. And that can be replicated among whites, Hispanics, and Asian and, and African Americans as well. So in a sense, your argument is it's defeatist to have quotas and this kind of affirmative action, because actually, as a society, what we should be saying is helping and encouraging and maybe even forcing some of these communities to improve what they're doing within their own families, to early life education, helping through, you know, resourcing and other means, instead of putting the onus at, at the end of the process on institutions to kind of fix a problem that society allowed to happen earlier in their lives. Is that, is that sort of part of the argument? Well, that's that's an incredibly important part of the the argument and the the dialogue about closing the educational gaps uh, between the races, but but there is there is something else that that is that is deeply troubling uh, about using race, and and that is colleges and universities that lower the bar for uh, African Americans and Hispanics often see that those students who are admitted um, uh, either drop out uh, because the, uh, their, their academic backgrounds are not sufficient to compete at some of these colleges or universities, uh, or um, whereas they hope to become doctors or engineers or, com or major in computer science, they find that those, that those um, uh, majors and areas of study are just too competitive for them. 
And while they may not drop out of, of schools like Duke and Stanford, they switch from computer science and pre-med into the humanities or the social sciences, where had they gone to a school where their qualifications were better matched, uh, then they would uh, graduate with degrees in engineering and biology and perhaps go on to medical school. That's, a, that's another important element that I think will change when these, when these opinions come down. So there's a practical argument there that sort of pushing and pulling the uh, outcomes doesn't actually help the students, in other words, that they, they would reach a better place later in life if they weren't artificially pushed into places that maybe didn't suit them. That's exactly right. And there's, there's data and studies to, to, to you know, in, in, endorse, in, endorse that view. Plus, there's, there's, there's one other element here. Often, and we've heard it and we can read it and we've seen it a million times, um, minority kids on competitive campuses will say that their friends and colleagues uh, believe and have expressed to them that the only reason that they are there is because they are a certain race, not because they were academically qualified. So those kids who truly were academically qualified feel like, you know, because the bar is lowered for all African-Americans, uh, even though I scored as well as any Asian on this campus, people think I'm here because I'm black. So it actually takes away from their achievement. Now, I'm not going to try and do a gotcha here, Mr. Bloom, but I do feel like the last couple of arguments would equally apply to affirmative action based on economic criteria. So if you're in favor of affirmative action for people who have had a more deprived background or have had a less good education, they too would arrive at the college without the necessary preparation. They might also suffer. They might have to change course. They may, might have to drop out. How is that any different? Well, that, that, is, that is very true. Well, you, you may notice that uh, I said, lower the bar a little bit. You, you cannot lower the bar dramatically uh, for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, just as you cannot lower the bar for kids from ethnic or racial backgrounds. So uh, that may be, that may be uh, an, an outcome. But more importantly, um, kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds don't walk around campus with signs saying um, uh, family below poverty level or I'm the first in my family to go to college. Um, you won't know that uh, uh, just looking at um, kids from those backgrounds. They may disclose it to their friends and, and, and others, but you won't know it. So there's less, there's less stigma. Is it not similarly defeatist though? If, if you're saying the most important unit is the family and schools and early life education, to say we're going to put our finger on the scales to help people who've had less advantageous family lives, less advantageous education, is just the same. It's, it's giving up on the root cause of the problem, and it's putting the onus on these institutions. What's well, actually, as a society, we need to fix that so that those provide better ladders out of underperforming schools, do better in terms of helping families look after their kids, and generally not give up on them. Well, I, I don't see it as an either or proposition, Freddie. Yes, um, uh, families, uh, mothers and fathers, 
uh, are, are going to have to change their behavior. Uh, they're going to have to demand more of their children. They're going to have to spend more time and emphasize the importance of, of family life and early education from the cradle through the, 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 you know, the very first grade. But, but that doesn't mean that colleges and universities can't recognize that there are you know, hundreds of thousands of really academically gifted kids uh, that have, for a variety of reasons, grown up in households that just don't have the resources for tutors uh, who attend schools in neighborhoods where those schools aren't as fulsome with their academic um, uh, offerings as uh, private schools in this country or suburban well-to-do schools in this country. So lowering the bar a little bit for those kids, rural areas, things like that, that's, that's not really in great tension with, with what I'm talking about with the family. But would a better solution not be saying, let's provide funds to people for private tutoring, let's put schools for gifted kids in the middle of these deprived neighborhoods, let's try and build ladders out of those situations. I mean, as a, as a liberal, a classical liberal or a philosophical liberal, would you not prefer to be making that argument that a true meritocracy where universities just pick the best people, the people who they think are going to flourish the most. Um, and it's the job of national governments and wider society to make sure that that opportunity is well spread. Again, I don't think it's an either or. I, I think, I think um, our societies, uh, our culture uh, needs to be addressed to some degree by government intervention. Um, when you measure what government has done in the past, however, um, you know, tens of billions, I withdraw that, trillions of dollars in this country have been spent trying to narrow the gaps um, in educational attainment between African Americans and Hispanics on the one hand and whites and Asians on the other. Uh, it, it has been, I would think, just really modestly successful. Uh, we can spend more money, but I think the, the bulk of the solution is at the cradle and at the family. And could resources be put there? Sure, but it's really going to be up to moms and dads to do this. And I have, I have seen this over the last eight years. Uh, in, we have dozens of Asian students who have participated in these lawsuits. Uh, I have been to their homes. Um, I have been to uh, one-bedroom, very modest apartments in Queens, New York, where mom is a maid at a midtown hotel, dad is a doorman uh, at, a, at an apartment building on the Upper East Side, uh, two children kind of live in the living room while mom and dad have the bedroom, very modest backgrounds. How is it that these kids have done so well in school, so well um, in, in their standardized tests? Um, it's because mom and dad were there and, and encouraged them. They put resources, limited resources, into their education. So that's what needs to be done more than just about anything else. So there needs to be some uncomfortable home truths spoken to some of these other communities that are underperforming, saying, look, you need to focus on 
family life. We need to focus on making sure that you know mum and dad are paying proper attention to education. And you know, I guess some of these communities need to take responsibility for the outcomes. Well, that's right. Um, now, keep in mind that students for fair admissions is a bit of a one trick pony. Um, we believe that race and ethnicity should not be an element in college admissions. We did not go to the Supreme Court and uh, tell the Supreme Court how to craft family policy, how to encourage uh, moms and dads to get their kids uh, studying longer and, and, and spending more resources on tutors and things like that. So we have a narrow focus. but. Uh, there are dozens of, of think tanks, uh, social service organizations that uh, are in the business of doing what we just talked about. Let's end on a bit of a practical note. If, if you're successful, if the principle is changed so that race cannot be included in admissions, obviously top colleges and universities would have to change their admissions process. Do you think there would be further ramifications? Do you think it would be a kind of tidal effect that suddenly corporate boards, um, other institutions could no longer consider race as well? Or do you think it would stop at the universities? No, here's my great hope. My great hope is that the opinion that comes out of these two cases provides this country with a legal doctrine, a doctrine that can be applied to um, the area of employment can be applied to uh, fellowships and scholarships, can be applied to voting issues and contracting issues, that that doctrine will, will be the beginning of the, 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 the restoration of the, of the great colorblind um, covenant that has held together this country uh, through uh, very difficult uh, historical uh, uh, episodes. So that's my hope, uh, is that the justices give us something that not only applies to just higher education, but also these other very important areas of American life. And when do you think that might happen? What, what should we be looking out for? Probably the last week of June uh, 2023. We don't know what date. Um, it, it could come earlier. Um, these are my seventh and eighth cases that I've worked on. Uh, you just never know, but uh, in, I think common wisdom is that uh, the, the more difficult cases are put off to the very end, and that's, that's when I expect them to come. Fascinating. Well, we will be tuning in for sure. Thank you so much, Edward Bloom, for telling us about your campaign. Thanks for having me, Freddie. I enjoyed this. That was Edward Bloom, the conservative legal strategist who has devoted a huge amount of energy, time and money over the years fighting against affirmative action on the grounds of race. Probably some of you would think from the left that he is just rolling back decades of progress, that he's going to return us to some kind of white supremacist world. Some, maybe from the right or from a more libertarian perspective, might think that he doesn't go far enough and that by allowing any kind of affirmative action, um, he's only taking half measures. Well, whatever you think, let us know in the comments. It's always good to hear from you. In the meantime, thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.